Keeping up on Seattle area politics is tough. Who has time to sit through a three-hour council meeting and sort out which decisions will affect you most? All those in favor say aye. Aye. Well, what if getting caught up on current events was as simple as getting a cup of coffee with some City Hall insiders who know which stories are hot and which are not? Welcome to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. And we are back once again on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, the podcast that is helping you stay connected to local politics in the era of social distancing. I'm Brian Callanan, your host. I'm also a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. We are recording today's podcast on Zoom yet again, and I'm with the remote co-host with the most. Kevin Schofield of Seattle City Council Insight. Kevin, good to see and hear you, my man. Hey, Brian, good to see you too. All right, here we go. Special thanks, as always, to City Grind Espresso. It's the coffee shop on the first floor of Seattle City Hall, shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but still our background noise sponsor. Please support City Grind, other small businesses too, as the coronavirus shutdown continues. And if you like what you're hearing here, please support our podcast on Patreon. So let's get rolling with Right Here, Right Now. All right, as we get into the third full week of April here, Kevin, I want to talk about residential evictions and and a moratorium on that, to be more specific. The Seattle City Council is set to decide this week on Council President Gonzalez's bill to extend the city's residential eviction moratorium for six months after the COVID state of emergency ends. There's another bill, too, allowing tenants to pay back rent over the course of a full year. Once again, I need to make sure we're clear on this. This does not mean don't pay your rent. What the city is doing is basically giving tenants and landlords a legal framework of eviction proceedings, if indeed they get underway for non-payment of rent. So, Kevin, I know the council has been relatively supportive of this. We've heard some voices of concern, too. Your expectations here? I think these are going to pass. I think, I think in fact, they're going to pass easily. Uh, the, you know, the reality of the situation right now is that... Um, there are a ton of people who just can't pay their rent. And there's lots of data that shows right now that eviction is a significant path to homelessness. Yeah. Right? So if the council and the mayor, I think, feel like if they don't jump in here, you know, we're going to see the the homeless count grow substantially. Yeah. And, and just looking at that, the governor talking about extending that moratorium on evictions through June 4th. I just wonder, though, at the city level, at the state level, whenever these eviction moratoria, as I use the plural there, whenever Look, those expire. Go. Yeah, there I go. That Latin. There yeah, I've go. been trying for a long time. Are we going to have a wave of evictions when these moratoria actually wrap up? What are your thoughts on that? Well, so, you know, I've talked to a lot of landlords and a lot of tenants over the last couple of years around this. And, you know, first of all, eviction is harder than it seems. And yeah. it just got, it, it got harder over the last six months. Um, you know, here in Seattle, we have these just cause eviction rules, right. which limit the, the reasons why you can evict someone. And, you know, it, it, it used to be uh, that uh, it, you know, landlords could evict somebody, you know, for qu- quite a while. Landlords could evict somebody for, for almost any reason, but now right. it's got to be, you know, you've really got to do the paperwork as, as a landlord to do this. What it means uh, for some landlords is if they have just an obnoxious tenant, mm-hmm. they, in a lot of cases, can't get rid of them. And there, yeah. there are landlords who jump at the opportunity with the first late payment to evict a bad tenant, right? Sure. Who who knows how to skirt around the rules and mm-hmm. not do something that will sort of invoke the just cause eviction rules, right? 
Now, I'm, that's not to say that all tenants are like this or, nope. or all landlords are like this, right? So I think there may be cases where, uh, where, where I'm sure there will still be cases where landlords want to do that, where it's like, yeah. I've, I've had this bad tenant who's been annoying all the other tenants in the building. Right. And they're not illegally, but doing something. Not, I know not illegally, yeah. but yeah. boy, you know, my life would be so much better if they mm-hmm. weren't here yeah. and, and jump at that. But I think the bigger question is really what's going to happen to uh, – the rental housing market in Seattle yeah, as yeah. we come out of this shutdown, right? Right. Where there's going to be a lot of people who are out of jobs and we don't know the pace at which all these companies are going to start hiring people back. So right. it may be that a lot of people get hired back quickly or it may be that it really goes kind of slowly. So interesting. And I know we saw recently in the Seattle Times, some rental prices actually went up around the area over the months of month of March, which sounds shocking to me, but you're right. We still have a lot ahead when it comes to our housing market here. I should point out, I did a show on Seattle Channel about the eviction moratorium question. The King County Bar Association, the Washington Multifamily Housing Association, join me on that. Check it out at seattlechannel.org. Okay, moving on. And here we go talking about Seattle Channel. Kevin, just when you thought it was safe to turn off the Seattle Channel, forget about it. We've got a schedule set for the council to hold committee hearings on the big business tax, the legislation sponsored by Councilmember Sawant and Councilmember Morales. So the background here, a 1.3% tax on payroll for any Seattle company with a payroll greater than $7 million, about 800 businesses around the area, public agencies, nonprofits, nonprofits, grocery stores off that list. This plan as proposed, $500 checks going to 100,000 households of people in need for four months. Now, the nugget here, as first reported by Kevin in Seattle City Council Insight, the council, if they pass this under a state of emergency, as we are under right now, it's referendum proof. So we got this first hearing set for Wednesday, April 22nd. Kevin, what are we in for? Well, it's going to start out with a presentation by the city budget office, giving yep. a, you know first first round uh, of their estimate of what the COVID shutdown means for the city budget, which you know is going to be alarming. It's absolutely going to be alarming, but you know, in a sense, it's kind of off topic because there's really nothing in this, you know, as Councilmember Swan likes to call it, the Amazon tax yeah. package here mm-hmm. that will address budget shortfalls mm-hmm. right now, right? The way they've got this thing written right now, the $200 million in, in the first year is going to go to these $500 a month checks for 100,000 households. Right. And then in future years, it's going to go to Green New Deal um, proposals and, uh, and affordable housing. So yeah. there's, no, there's no budget offset on this. And that doesn't mean that the city council might not you know, write that in somewhere mm-hmm. in, in this budget proposal in, in the first year. But then, you know, coming back to the whole referendum point, the really dicey thing about this right now is that uh, they are using the, you know, declared emergency around, uh, around the COVID outbreak mm-hmm. as a means to put this thing through as emergency legislation yeah. that is not subject to referendum. Right. 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 Now, if, if this was, if this was two bills, if this was a bill that was first of all, just focused on COVID relief, mm-hmm. right. You're raising 200, you know, $200 million, whatever they think they need for COVID relief in the first year. Yeah. And they needed to pass that. Okay. We could have an argument about right. Whether that's the right policy thing to do. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing is they're passing a $500 million a year, tax to pay for affordable housing and Green New Deal projects in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And they're using the cover of the COVID emergency to pass out so that there can't be a referendum. And that's important because 
you know, two years ago when we did the Amazon tax. Yeah, the head tax, one, right. Mm-hmm. The head tax. The reason that the council ended up repealing that was because polling showed that the, the referendum that was starting to get organized already around it was really likely going to pass. Right, right. And I, I wanted to make sure I went down one piece of this, too. It's really tricky, too, to try to figure out which businesses are actually affected by this. I know the state discloses only this aggregate payroll data. Seattle's got information on gross receipts, but the information about these individual businesses is confidential. These types of figures aren't readily available to the city. So I think there's a lot of question marks as to who is actually affected by this. So the county has payroll numbers. The state has payroll numbers. They give the city aggregate data on that, but they don't give them kind of the details of which companies are paying this. But, you know, we we can sort of roughly figure this out a little bit here. So mm-hmm. the average uh, salary in Seattle is about $70,000. Right. right. So to make a $7 million payroll cutoff for this, you'd have to have about 100 employees. Yeah. Right. So, you know, any company that's got, you know, a good variety of employees, they're not all, you know, minimum wage employees. Mm-hmm. If they've got a, about 100 employees, they're going to end up paying this tax. Yeah. There's so much concern about this. And I should point out, my Seattle Channel colleagues tell me the council is gearing up to try to allow for public comment, definitely during its main council meeting, but hopefully during some of these committee meetings too, using Zoom webinar. The testing is actually going on as we speak, Kevin, as we record this podcast. They're really trying to work on having people pre-register prior to the meeting. And so when they call back, there's going to be a valid phone number. So trying to avoid the crank calls, et cetera. It's not quite clear if this is going to work, but I really think this piece of it, not only having this discussion, but allowing for some public comment about it is going to be really key if the council wants to get anywhere with a discussion like this. Yeah. And once again, you know, other than Morales and and Sawant, Mm You know, the rest of the council members have said almost nothing about how they feel about this. So yeah. eventually this county, the council members are going to have to kind of make their feelings known. Yep. Yeah. This. But no. um, it, it may or may not be Wednesday. No, very, very true. Still a lot ahead for that. Thank you very much for that, Kevin. Let's switch it up to now hear this. All right. We're focusing once again on the West Seattle Bridge, a major announcement over this past week. In the midst of the COVID crisis, the West Seattle Bridge shut down through at least the year 2021. Let that sink in. Then consider that it might not even be possible to replace the bridge as is. Here's what Seattle Department of Transportation Director Sam Zimbabwe said about this. We need more information to determine if the the, uh, repair of the bridge is feasible from a technical or financial perspective. If it is feasible to to complete a full repair and bring vehicles back on the bridge, we think it will add another 10 or so years of life to the bridge itself. So in in any case, we are now needing to think about replacement of the West Seattle high-rise bridge much sooner than was anticipated when it opened in 1984. Okay, Kevin, we're talking about some issues short-term and long-term, both not great scenarios here. Short-term, we might be able to shuffle along for 10 years or so with an interim repair. Let's try to focus on the short-term piece first, please. Yeah, so short-term, uh, they while they were kind of scouting out what was going on in the bridge, they found one other side issue they had to fix first where one of the pieces of the bridge was called the lateral bearing that helps the bridge kind of shift in the wind and shift as, you know, thermal expansion contraction helps so that, you know, it's, think of it as a shock absorber on the bridge. Right. Um, it, it's broken right now. 
Yeah, so this is driving, your car, yeah. driving your car with a broken shock absorber, and that's kind of what the bridge is going through. And they think that might be exacerbating some of the problems. It's not the, probably not the cause of the problems of the cracking, mm-hmm. but it may be exacerbating. So they got to go fix that first. Yep, yep. And then they can figure out how they're going to shore up the bridge so that it doesn't fall down. So they can get big crews in there and maybe do kind of a, a some kind of repair on this, right? Yep. And they have to get a plan for that. They have to go source materials. They may think they may need they they might need custom materials and custom equipment to go yeah. do all that work. They have to figure out whether they're going to impede traffic on the on the on the river below, which is now a federal waterway. Right. So if they impede traffic, they have to go get federal permits to do that. So they figure with all that, it's probably going to take them until the end of 2021 just to finish the shoring work and have enough information and build together a plan for how to do repairs. Now, in the short term, uh, this week and next week, they're installing a ton of more monitoring equipment. So they're really going to start collecting really in-depth data as to what's going on with this bridge. So they're going to be a lot smarter by the time to get to, they get to the summer and they're really kind of doing the shoring work and starting to put together an earnest plan for what a, a, a repair would look like. But today, as you said, the question they're asking is, can we even actually repair this yeah bridge. yeah just and, don't know and and that's and that's the long-term question here i know in the short term we're going to see a lot ahead not only that monitoring work on the bridge which is very important but the city working on new transit options i know the city's not crazy about having park and ride lots but it happened during the viaduct closure and i know the city yeah. actually had some of those on the west seattle side more people using the water taxi and, and i will say during some of that shutdown of the viaduct a lot of people in west seattle got used to this idea of telecommuting or whatever else that's definitely going to be leaned on in this period ahead here but if we could kevin can we talk about long term here possibilities of getting federal help is certainly a place to look here i know the mayor's talked with our congressional contingent senators murray and cantwell here what do we need here i mean i don't think we even have an idea of how much it would cost to actually replace this bridge and when you start saying we don't even know if we can replace it as is i see some big big dollar signs in my eyes Oh, no doubt. So uh, in today's dollars, the bridge we have right now, when it was built, cost about $400 million. It Opened was, in it was, 1984, it was, right. It was less than $1984, but it translated into, you know, through inflation with what it would cost today, it was about $400 million, right? Okay. So that's, that's big money. So, um, the, you know, the possible good news there is that as part of either the next or future COVID relief packages, federal government is looking at major infrastructure projects. The city and the state and our congressional delegation are working really hard right now to make sure that we've got everything lined up so we can, you know, get all the paperwork in and potentially, you know, get a piece of that money for a big infrastructure project if we need to repair and, you know, eventually replace this bridge. Yeah. Yeah. And corollary to that too. Sound Transit, I know, involved in some of these talks, too, trying to get that bridge over to West Seattle, maybe yeah. involving that somehow. That That's an interesting piece here, too, that could, I know the mayor doesn't want to add to the delay at all, but certainly that's got to be part of the planning here looking forward. Well, yeah, and, and you know, when you look at the, the timing for when Sound Transit would be building light rail right. out to West Seattle, you know, that's actually not too far off from the timing, right? Yeah, So yeah. It, it may be, if you know, if in the post-initiative 976 world, yes, right. Sound Transit has any money, then <laughs> there's that. It, yeah, it, it, you know, this may be a really good option to say, let's build a single bridge that handles vehicle traffic and light rail. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit further about a deep dive you did on the sweetened beverage tax, a study recently released by the University of Washington, a study commissioned by the city. It shows the sweetened beverage tax passed in 2017 by the council, councilmatic action here. It had no effect really on the amount of sweetened beverages consumed by low income children and their parents who this bill was really designed for. Kevin, I don't know if this was a shocker necessarily to a lot of people, but it certainly wasn't something the city was looking to see. So this is a big trend back in 2016, 2017. There are a lot of cities that were looking at passing these kinds of uh, soda taxes or sweet and beverage taxes. Philadelphia, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley. Now we're a couple years past that. We're seeing a lot of the studies that were commissioned to see kind of, you know, what is the effect of these having come back. Mm -hmm. And the results, you know, the best you could say is they are mixed. There have been a bunch of cities that really have not seen you know, a, a substantial decrease in consumption of the of these kinds of, uh, you know, sugar beverages. So this one came back and, and what this study did was, and it was done by University of Washington, it was paid for by the city of Seattle. Right. Um, it did a baseline study before the tax went into place to right. see sort of what consumption levels were. And then it checked again at uh, at six months and at twelve months, and and focusing on a low income population too. Focusing, the city was yeah, really trying to help. Yeah, that's and I'm not sure why exactly why they did this, but um, uh, you know rather than uh, sort of sample the entire population mm-hmm. and see you know how different subsets of uh, you know different demographics you know reacted to this, they focused on you know what is clearly the most important audience for for this kind of task, which mm-hmm. is low-income children and their parents mm-hmm. um, to see, you know, did their consumption go down? And they and what they did was they also studied consumption in kind of the surrounding area, including uh, Kent and Federal Way, mm-hmm. where there are also, you know, low-income communities uh, that are close enough to Seattle so they would, you know, see the general economic trends that Seattle would have. You know, this Mm -hmm. is basically an attempt to control for everything but the tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what they found at the 12-month point looking at this was that there was a decrease in consumption in Seattle in these these communities that they studied. But there was basically the same decrease in the areas of, you know, of King County outside of Seattle. So there was basically no change that you could attribute to the soda tax. Yeah. And I'm I'm just trying to figure out what now. I know the city's been talking about getting some different tax dollars, looking for different avenues. This was one way they were able to do that. What do we do now? I know the city always talks about we have a regressively set up system. This only seems to add to that regression. If you, if you look at my interpretation of what they're seeing here, oh, yeah. uh, let me, let's me let talk about that. The future of this tax. What do you think? Yeah, this is, you know, when it was introduced, this was a big point of debate for the city council. Yep. This is a highly regressive tax. It is it, you know, because these products, you know, sugar sweetened beverages and other sugar sweetened products are, are marketed and targeted at mm-hmm. low end commu- communities. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is, uh, a tax that is, you know, that, that that is disproportionately paid by those folks. Right? Yeah, because it so, looked like a lot. There was a, a pass through of the tax in a lot of cases, going straight to the consumer on this. Right. That's one of the things that that, that they also check in this. They also yeah. check to see, you know, what happens with prices of these products. Right? Yep. Because if you know the the, the tax the way it's implemented is it's not uh, it's not a new retail sales tax. It's yeah. actually a tax paid for by the wholesale distributors. Yeah. So yep. the question you have to ask is does that get passed all the way down through the retail you know outlets down to the consumers or is somebody eating it along the way so mm-hmm. that you know it doesn't hurt in you know it doesn't hurt their sales, and and 
price because if, if consumers don't see a higher price on this, it's definitely not going to affect their behavior. Right. What right. they found is that overall, yeah, most of it is being passed through. About eighty nine percent of of the dollar, you know, the sorry, one point seven cents uh, cents per ounce mm-hmm. gets passed through. So it was passed through. Consumers saw the difference in price, and they largely did not react to it. Wow. So amazing. Well, we'll have to see what the council does with that one because yeah. they talk and, a lot about relying on data here and they've got yeah. some data now. And, and like, like you said, they, they've become reliant on this tax revenue, right? And, and, you know, from day one, the bigger fights were about how to spend the money. Yeah. Go into food program. Sure. You know, a bunch of it got siphoned off for the Seattle preschool program. Yep. Yep. Uh, Council President Harrell at the time siphoned some of it off for the Seattle Promise. Right. Uh, you know, 13th year Promise scholarship, mm-hmm. college scholarship program. Right, right. Right. So there's uh, right now, in fact, just uh, two weeks ago, the city council just uh, uh, redirected some of it for emergency uh, food vouchers as exactly. part of the COVID relief. So, mm-hmm. you know, they keep looking at it as a bucket to go back to, 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 you know, find some money to spend on things, right? Yeah. So they're very attached to this revenue and they're, they're going to be hard pressed to repeal this highly aggressive tax where there's no evidence that it's working. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what's next with that one. All right. Well, let's move on to our next segment. What's next? Kevin, I wanted to briefly touch on homeless hygiene services. We talked about this a little bit last week, the challenges of getting hygiene services out to the homeless during this time of COVID-19. Our colleague, Erica C. Barnett, reported on this over the past week. Seattle's really paying some big bucks for shower trailers, portable shower trailers during this crisis, paying not just to rent these trailers, but also to clean them, providing security. Let's talk about this because I think this has been a big challenge for Seattle and other cities on the West Coast, too. Right. It's been a big challenge and it predates COVID. COVID yes, of makes course. it worse in a lot of ways, but it definitely predates COVID. So last year, the city auditor did a report looking at uh, a number of issues around the navigation team and homeless response. And one of the issues that he really highlighted was the fact that just in terms of hygiene facilities available to the homeless, we are way, way behind where we should be. And the, mm-hmm. the benchmark they used was what uh, you know, does the you know uh, the UN organization that responds to refugee crises yeah. mm-hmm. look for in terms of the number of toilets that they that need to be available you know per thousand per capita. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right per capita and Seattle right now in terms of what we're supplying to our homeless community is well below that standard we've got toilets in parks mm-hmm. but they're only open when the parks are open which means right. at dusk they close so uh, the city auditor found that overnight, there are only six public toilets open in the city of Seattle. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. So since then, there's really been a push to try to get these kind of portable hygiene stations or find other ways to get um, more of these hygiene facilities open. And, and you know, even before COVID, it was an issue because cities like San Diego have seen big outbreaks of hepatitis A. In fact, we're seeing one right now yeah. in the Ballard Commons Park that, area. That's right. Right, a hepatitis A outbreak. It's it it is an ongoing concern with homeless communities that that they can become vectors for these kinds of communicable diseases. Yeah. Right? In last year's budget, the city council put in some money to buy some portable hygiene right. stations, mm-hmm. um, and they put in more for the 2020 budget to do this. But the problem that sort of layers on top of this now is COVID, mm-hmm. where suddenly every city needs these mobile hygiene stations. That's right. 
Yeah, they had to truck like, the other truck these up from California yeah, to Seattle. So kind of like with PPE for COVID. Yes. Suddenly there's a major bidding war going on for the limited number of these things that are actually being manufactured. Right. Yeah. And so this has been a, 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 a real stress point between the council and the mayor's office yes. and Seattle Public Utilities right now, where the council wants the city to move faster to get these things bought and deployed. And the, and the mayor's office is saying, well, we're trying, but these mm-hmm. things are ridiculously expensive. Right yeah. Now. yeah. So, at, you know, as you mentioned before, Erica Barnett has been doing some really good reporting. Yeah. Looking at, you know, of the, you know, as, as the cities, you know, move to try to, you know, shut down parks uh, to avoid having, you know, large crowds in yes, some of, of our course. parks. Mm-hmm. That is limited access to even the, the public restrooms and the parks. Right. Or the homeless community. Right. Right. So, in a sense, we're almost kind of contracting where we really need to be expanding. But just getting the additional resources and getting them out there and available has turned out to be super difficult. Yeah, yeah. Crisis before the COVID pandemic and now even more so highlighted with that. Kevin, we need to move on to the last segment of our show. We're talking about what's cooking in the oven here, and it's time for some baked goods, as we always do on our program. Uh, what do you have to bring to the table today, sir? I I, I got into cooking with this. Here week, we go. So I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys saw this, and I don't know if, Brian, you've ever stayed. Have you ever stayed at a Doubletree Hotel? I have. Oh, the cookies. The cookies. Talk to me. Yeah. The cookies. Right. They put so, out the uh, they put out the recipe. They put out the recipe for this. So they, if you ever stayed at a Doubletree Hotel, then you know at check-in you get like one or two of these just awesome cookies that they keep Pretty in the warmer drawer behind the counter there yeah, yeah. at the front desk. And they finally gave out the recipe for this. So, and I, I'm super addicted to this cookie. So <laughs> I, I, I tried the recipe. And it is it is faithful to what they hand out at, mm-hmm. at, at, the, at the hotel. So That's I good news. Okay. This, and they are so good. <laughs> um, so I've, I've, I've got my last one from my first batch. So I, I will tell you, I got mm-hmm. a hint from my daughter of, of, of what to do. So that um, when you make up a batch of, of chocolate chip cookie dough, you use most of it to sort of make the cookies. But you take some and roll up the little balls okay. and stick it in a Tupperware container in your freezer. Mm. And that way you can pull out like one or two and just make a couple of cookies at a time. Right. Rather than have to make enormous batches. So now I've wow. got a bunch of little you know, cookie dough balls sitting in my in my freezer in a mm-hmm. Tupperware container, which yeah. should last me for a while. So I did that. So <laughs> last the other, a week at least, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I've got double tree cookies, and they're just ridiculously good. Fantastic. Um, and you can yeah. find the recipe up on up online on the internet. Okay. So the other thing, uh, uh, just a back remain, my mother's British. Mm. And so... Jolly good. I, mm-hmm. so jolly good. So I, I have an affection for digestives. Ah. Digestive cookies, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I made a bunch of those this week, and of course, oh wow! You can't just you can't just have the plain ones. You have to no. have the chocolate covered ones. Oh so, wow! You're not so even I messing around. Okay, I am uh, chocolate. <laughs> are you kidding me? Of course, <laughs> I'm right, not messing right, around. Right, right, right. So I've got, I've got I've got the full load here. I just like great. I'm trying to get. I'm working so hard to get exercise because I'm eating so many cookies. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I'm in the same boat. My daughter, right, what you uh, got? My daughter very kindly put together some honey lavender scones. Nice. Uh, uh, the morning of the of the broadcast here, so still a uh, little slightly warm, uh, dusted with some granulated sugar on top, and uh, I'm, I'm taking a bite, man. Forget it. Go here for it. Uh huh. Mm. Boy, you talk about your British bacon. This is the stuff. There's something about having that crispness on the outside and a good chewiness in the middle. Um, I know it's my kid, but this is great stuff, and I've had way too much of this myself around the house. But such is the time of COVID. We need to uh, 
get through as best we can and uh, and talk out these different issues and also enjoy some great baked goods. All right, we're going to wrap it up here. Kevin, thank you once again for being with me. Uh, thanks, Brian. All right, Am, the next time you want to know what's going on in local politics, give us a listen, find out what's brewing. Reach us via email at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Please support us on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. And thank you for listening. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2020.